Welcome to the Functional Medicine Doc Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kurt Wohler, talking with experts in functional and integrative health and medicine, discussing critical information for improving your health and wellness to help you live a long, full life. Let's get to it. Welcome, everybody, to the Functional Medicine Doc Talk Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kurt Wohler, and I'm joined today by an individual I actually met recently, Jeff Thurston, who is a specialist in probiotics, enzymes. He's an owner of Master Supplements, very knowledgeable individual. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So Jeff, welcome welcome to the program. Welcome is a good word indeed. I enjoy being here. Awesome. So before we get into the main topics, because you know I have some questions for you about probiotics and different types of bacteria. Of course, we'll talk about the microbiome and talk about some things with regards to enzymes. Give the audience just a little background on yourself, how you got into this work, and um, what's been your involvement here over the past number of years. Well, it's a, it's a journey like other people have journeys. You don't know which way the road's going to take you. But when I got out of college, uh, it was the height of the Vietnam War. There was a draft that changed the trajectory for so many people that I, I went to school with. Someone over and served. I, I was kind of lucky. I dislocated my shoulder. And so they sent me home. Um, so I was one of the fortunate ones, but ended up working in a bio lab with things like Rocky Mountain spider fever and Q fever and chikungunya and all these other pathogens. And you know, so I shower to get in and out. So I've been doing that for a long time. But once I figured out what I was doing, I, I morally couldn't stay there. So I didn't, guy talked me into getting into sales. So I got into lawn and garden sales and I started looking around and seeing all these chemicals in the stores. And I'm, I remember one of the books that I remember reading that I loved so much was uh, Rachel Carson's The Silent Spring. Now, you know, that was 1962, talking about DDT and how harmful it was to the environment. So I ended up leaving there and I got into organic agriculture. Okay. I was selling a product that was called hot pepper wax. It was just onion, garlic, hot peppers. You know, you put it on plants and you kept the bugs away. It didn't kill them. It just kept them away from your tomatoes. Right. And it didn't add any flavor. So I was doing that. And, uh, and I met my partner, business partner, Randy Probkin, um, in, I think it was Tulare in about 95. And we went out to dinner, had a great talk. And we realized we had so many things in common. He said, someday we should start a business. Well, in 2002, he called me up and said, you ready? And we started Master Supplements. It was, it was based upon probiotics and enzymes from the very beginning, uh, understanding what gut health was, understanding what you needed to do to grow bacteria, what you needed to do to make them survive, and yada, yada. Um, and we've been doing this a long time. And in 2019, we um, bought the brands, um, U.S. Enzymes, which is all systemic enzyme, digestive enzymes, and other things, and partnered with Tayo on um, a, a brand called Tomorrow's Nutrition Pro, and that's where we are today. Awesome. So I had a question for you. We'll come back to it, though, on systemic enzymes, because we, we want to talk about just you know gut enzymes, too. Uh, but we're, let's first talk about um, probiotics. I mean, you know, a lot of people are familiar with this. Just you go to a health food store and, you know, I got to get a probiotic or your doc puts you on an antibiotic and say, hey, go get a probiotic, you know, so you don't get, you know, uh, gut imbalances. But the, the, the aspects of probiotics, I know there's a lot to it, the science behind it, um, how they're produced and whatnot. 
what I'm just curious, you know, from maybe a common sort of probiotic that's out there on the market that somebody would get from a box store versus a company such as yours, you know, what are some of the things that people should understand about the, the probiotic industry um, in how these things, how viable they are, how they make their way through the digestive system? Uh, and I have some other questions based on that, but let's start there. I'm just curious about just the the industry itself and you know how these things are produced and how they make it through our digestive tract to get to where they need to go. Okay, well, first of all, let's start talking about the two different basic types of probiotics. There's the spore-based, and then there are the you know, lactobacillus and bifidobacteria, which are not spores, they're freeze-dried. So when a baby is born vaginally, about 87, 90% of their skin is covered with lactobacillus. And as mom breastfeeds, they get bifidobacteria. Then when the baby crawls around on the ground, they get soil-based organisms. And all of these things together can, you know, just growing and doing what they do, uh, build your basic microbiome. That's your probiotic fingerprint, I like to call it, from day one. And that's what you are. Now, if you're a C-section baby or if you weren't breastfed, um, there's probably less than 10% of the bacteria on your skin were lactobacillus from a, from a C-section. And if you're breastfed, you're not getting, you know, the colostrum you're getting, not getting human milk oligosaccharides, yada, yada. So there's a lot of differences between the two. And so when you're talking probiotics, well, you're, you're talking the same thing. You've got soil-based organisms. And one of the reasons a lot of people like them is because they can get through the stomach. Okay. The, 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 the conditions have to be right on the other side, though, for them to go from a spore to the vegetative state so that they can work. You know, they don't work as spores. They work, you know, as, as living organisms. Which I means would be the vegetative state is what? They're, they're sort of opening up. They're transforming into another. Right. Form. And they're reproducing and they're, they're taking nutrients in and outputting metabolites and doing all the things that they do. Okay. And we'll get into that just a little bit more um, down the road here. With, with lactobacillus and bifidobacteria, they're freeze-dried bacteria. They've been grown in a fermenter, washed, dropped into liquid nitrogen, and all the water is sucked out of them. So they're, you know, they're very stable in, in that form, but they're also very susceptible to stomach acid. So okay. when you, and, and they're also extremely susceptible to moisture. So one of the issues with, with going into a store, most of the probiotics you're going to find there are in a plastic bottle. Well, if the plastic bottle is cool on the inside, warm and moist on the outside, water will go into that bottle. It'll go right through the plastic. Glass bottles, though, that won't happen. So you really want to look at it for a product that's in a glass bottle. Okay. The next thing you want to look at is, um, are, they, are they listing the strains that are in the organism? You know, so it's like lactobils, lactobacillus acidophilus uh, NCFM or something of that sort. Or is it a proprietary blend of uh, X number of billion CFUs of all these different organisms? Uh, I like to say, well, if that's the case, then there's a chance that they put the most of the least expensive and the least of the most expensive in there. You know, it's just it's just a probiotic. They don't they're not really doing so for most people. Eh, it's OK. I mean, they're just taking probiotics, maybe because they don't need them, just because they heard they were a good thing. Um, right. Another way is with um, fermented foods. Right? You can eat uh, pickles, the old fashioned pickles, not the, the new pickles, um, sauerkraut kimchi, things of that sort, you're not going to get so much the bacteria, but you're going to get all of the 
the chemokines and cytokines that they've created in, in, in fermenting that food. So those are the different ways I think you can get probiotics and the benefits of probiotics. But in looking at it in a store, you really should be guaranteeing each organism at expiration, not the day it was made. And you should be looking at specific strains because then you can see what they do. Just throwing a bunch of things in there is, is different. So if you take a, let's just say, um, a, a probiotic that has um, Bacillus subtilis, but they don't tell you the strain, then you can get one that either creates inflammatory cytokines or anti-inflammatory cytokines. You know, in, improves interleukin 10 or doesn't, or inhibits in, uh, interfering gamma or doesn't. You don't know really what it's going to do. And if, and if you're not well, then you don't really want to take the wrong one. So a lot of people, when they take a probiotic, they say they don't work. Well, and maybe that's not that they don't work, but they just took the wrong one. Right. So getting into, you know, the real specifics of it, uh, to me, is where, where we spend our time because we're doing shows with doctors. And, and they need to know the right stuff. Yeah, it's just like a lot of things. It's it's much more specific and nuanced than just here, take this. Um, I'm I'm curious, and and I know a lot of people ask the questions about you know probiotics. Is if you're taking a particular probiotic, is it best to take it with food or without food? I mean, because it's obviously got to pass through the digestive system with the stomach, where there's going to be acid anyway. So the first question would be on with food, without food. Uh, Oh, what is your what's your uh, knowledge on that? Well, you're going to have two schools of thought on on whether you take it with food or away from food. One school is that if you if you take it with food, the food is buffering the acid in your stomach and therefore they're going to get through a little bit better. Um, the other school is, is if you eat food, you're going to increase the stomach acid, which is going to make it more difficult. Right. So you've got two schools of thought on that. But so what we did was we came up with a very unique way of getting things through the stomach by using sodium alginate. It's from seaweed. It's a, it's a, a natural uh, food stuff. And it, what happens is at a low pH, it's converted to alginic acid. It creates a shell in the stomach and it doesn't go back to sodium alginate till it comes out of the stomach and the pH is up around four, which is after the pancreas and the gallbladder. So we'll get through the stomach. I don't care if you take it in the morning, noon or night. It doesn't matter to us, but for other people, they use their arguments one way or the other. Spores, right. like I said before, they'll get through no matter when you eat them. So one of the things I've often felt just in practice is because you know, there's all these rules or things that are supposed to work or not work. But, you know, ultimately with many of these things, my feeling is, is, you know, just get these things, get these things into your body. They're not going to do any good. They're not going to do any good sitting on the you know, kitchen cupboard or sitting in the refrigerator. You got to get them into your body. There's sometimes not always perfect timing. Um, so it's very interesting about the sodium alginate. So once it gets what down into the jejunum, essentially, you know, the middle well, part past, of the ileum. Yeah. Just, you know, just past the pancreas, they, the, the, the body injects sodium bicarbonate into right. the system and starts to change the pH, which makes a big difference in and enzymes too that we'll get to later, but it's only at that point. Now, if people are taking a proton pump inhibitor, right, they're raising the pH of the stomach to four. So that that's, this is not going to be an issue there, but let's remember what stomach acid is. You know, it's, it's a barrier to entry. So all the bacteria that are in your mouth right now that you're just breathing and walking around and swallowing, they don't make it through either, which is probably a good thing. Yeah, right. And, you know, I'm curious with a lot of times, 
probiotics are being used sometimes along with botanical remedies, whether they're a single remedy, a combination remedy, for example. Um, do you have any information as far as these antimicrobial botanicals having an adverse or some type of reducing effect on the probiotic that they're giving around the same time? Uh, or is it just maybe a minimal effect? I think with food, it's probably not as a, a, a you know food, which meaning the herbal side of things. Right. It's probably not quite as critical um, as it is with say uh, uh, an antibiotic. You know, an antibiotic is going to just wipe out everything. The botanicals are a little bit more targeted in my sense. Like if you're taking garlic or onion or something like that, they're generally antimicrobial. Eh, give them about an hour apart. Uh, you know, and and you'll be fine with with uh, an antibiotic. You want to be about two hours away, and then right. you want to stay on them for at least six six to eight weeks afterwards, because okay. the effect of the antibiotic can last a lot longer. So you know, on that note of antibiotics, let's talk about the microbiome. So you mentioned up front, you know, the microbiome is this collection of bacteria or or just things that we're exposed to from a from a microbial standpoint. I find it interesting in that you, at one point in your career, were an organic farmer. So you obviously became very knowledgeable about soil and the health of soil and how that is transferred to our food, which is then transferred to our digestive system and our body in general. So the relationship between people's microbiome now, the food that we eat, the, the experiences that you've had in the farming, uh, the organic farming you know, world from a standpoint, what, what do you see are things that are happening now to people that maybe weren't happening 15, 20 years ago with regards to their overall microbiome diversity based on what we're being exposed to, whether it's just environmentally or in our food or, you know, a combination of factors? Well, there's two parts to that one. So remind me after I get the first diatribe done here about, about the, uh, the fiber issue. Okay. Okay. Um, if I, I'm six feet, six, six foot tall, if I put a plant and I grabbed it by the, the, the base of the plant, just at the soil line, and, and I put my hand as far over my head as I could, and I stood on a, the, the first two steps, the roots of that plant would make it all the way down to my feet. And in common agriculture now, the roots don't go down a foot. Wow. Now, on all of those um, root hairs, which are a lot similar to like the, the, the microvilli in the small intestine, on all those root hairs, they're colonized by bacteria, fungi, actinomycetes. And in fact, in about an acre of grassland forest, there's three tons of bacteria, actinomycetes, and fungi. And if you turn that crop over, you've killed most of that. So no longer do you have the microbial input. Now, what do the microbes do? The microbes you, you can raise a plant with NPK. I mean, we've been told this forever. You can grow grass on a rock with water and NPK, right? But that doesn't mean it has any nutrient. All it has is, you know, sodium, potassium, and, and uh, phosphorus. It, but deep, deep, deep down in the soil, there's yttrium, there's selenium, there's all these different minerals. And it's the bacteria, the fungi, and the actinomycetes to take those minerals and move them into the plant. And there's two things these bacteria have in common they cannot store energy. So the bacteria in the soil can't store energy. The bacteria in your gut can't store energy. They, re, they, they need the host to supply the energy. So the root hairs produce an exudate, which feeds the bacteria. Then they can take the nutrients, put it in the plant, 
the cow, the deer, the elk, whatever, eats that grass and gets all the nutrients from that. But in this country, we turn over 900 million acres of, of sod every year, killing all of these soil bacteria. So guess what happens to the minerals in the food that we're eating? They're diminished. You know, you need selenium for, for, for uh, glutathione to work. You need zinc for superoxide dismutase to work. You, you know, you need all these chemicals or you know, minerals, I should say, for your enzymes to work. So if we don't have them, all these things are somewhat diminished just by the fact that we're not eating the kind of food that Mother Nature intended us to eat, filled with minerals. What about fiber? You mentioned fiber. All right. So um, curiously, and this is something most people probably don't know, human beings cannot utilize fiber. Yeah, it's the number one you know, food group we're supposed to be eating. We barely make 18 enzymes that might have anything to do with fibers. You know, like amylase, what breaks down a sugar. Well, sugars are part of fibers, et cetera. You know, 18. And there may be as many as 10,000 fiber combinations we eat every day. Because for an enzyme to work, it has to fit just right. But you put an extra branch in here, guess what? This enzyme can't work anymore. You need a different enzyme. They have to fit exactly like a lock and a key. So you may have as many as 10,000 different fiber combinations that we eat. Just add one more fructose unit to inulase, inulin, and you'll have you know, a different enzyme you need. So where do they come from? The bacteria in your gut. The, in, in, human milk, in human milk, breast milk, there is an ingredient called human milk oligosaccharide. It's absolutely indigestible by a human being. But his mom gives it to the baby, and it's in part formulated by the bacteria in mom. So if we take the human-centric picture away here, the bacteria in mom are feeding their offspring, and the human milk is their, is their vehicle. So the, the, the fiber feeds the bacteria. The enzyme, the minerals are absolutely critical for these bacteria to make the enzymes that we need to break down the fiber. So when we talk about fiber, you need to have all this variety, but the greater the variety, of, of fiber, the greater the variety of microbiomes, because e each bacterium makes a different enzyme to break down a different fiber, and that's their food source. So if you like chocolate and I like vanilla, we put chocolate in the system, who's going to do better? You. So if you're the good guy and I'm the bad guy and you eat chocolate, you're going to do better. Mm -hmm. But there's a converse to that. You know, if you, if you don't eat the right foods, you're feeding the wrong guys, and now your microbiome starts to wander away from optimal health. So one of the things that is being discussed a lot now, even in conventional medicine to some degree, but certainly in integrative functional medicine, in the functional medicine world, is aspects of the microbiome or imbalances in the microbiome that are being linked to different types of diseases and disorders. Um, I mean, there's even certain patterns within the microbiome that have been you know, associated with, you know, uh, you know, certain types of cancers or certain types of neurodegenerative conditions. So, you know, I mean, I, I, obviously it's a, it's a, that in itself is a very lengthy discussion to look at these types of things. I, so I work in the world of autism and have for 25 years. We we're having this conversation actually at a conference we were at. And so we know that there is, uh, many of these kids have imbalanced microbiomes. Is there something in your experience or the research you've come across, let's just take autism, for example, that is a fairly common pattern of their microbiome, certain types of bacteria that they're lacking and maybe or being overexpressed in uh, that, uh, that you've come across? 
Well, let's just, you know, I mean, again, you're, you're, you're talking you know, 10 million kids and each one is different. Right. You know, so what's going to affect one is not going to necessarily affect the other. I mean, even you get into short chain fatty acids, you know, butyrate is what you, you would like to see. But if you start producing propionate, you may get some negative reactions in other in other kids. You know, so, you know, th- there's a lot to the story. But let's just talk um, inflammation. You know, um, a, a lot of people, you know, inflammation can happen in your brain as well, which can cause some some issues. Why? And. One of the reasons why sulforaphane from broccoli is so good at, at helping to manage that inflammatory pathway. You know, um, the bacteria will do the same thing. Certain bacteria will make anti-inflammatory cytokines and other ones will make inflammatory cytokines. And, and, and again, it depends on, on, on the, the, the reason. But again, I think it goes a lot back to mom's food and the minerals that she got. I mean, if you go back to the end of World War II, you know, that's when we started having many more corporate farms. It was the first time we had supermarkets. And, and at this, that's a, starting about that time up until the 90s, we've lost 30 to 40% of the calcium in the food we eat. So if calcium is part of a biochemical process and it's not there in the food, you know, that can, can have an effect on, on, on the, the birth and, and uh, you know, how the kids grow up. So there's a lot of things there. Probiotic bacteria I've, we've had situations where, you know, a, a, a young young child is just laying on the couch, sucking their thumb in the fetal position. That's all they can do. And 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 you start giving them a probiotic and you start to um, change their their microbiome a little bit and you get rid of some of that belly pain. Guess what? They couldn't tell you what hurt, but now that they don't have that pain, they can get up and play on the floor. It doesn't mean they can talk. That doesn't mean anything's different. But there's a little change because you got rid of a little bit of belly pain. You know, you know how uncomfortable it is when you get gas and bloating. I mean, it's really uncomfortable. And if they're going through that all the time, your microbiome can change that just a little bit. Um, some, of, a lot of these kids, to me, I call them kids. I have a special needs daughter, um, so um, it's just a term that I've used forever. Sorry. Um, they eat very specific foods. Some will only eat chicken McNuggets. You know, others will only eat, you know, a certain food, but way too much sugar, you know, which is going to feed certain groups of bacteria, which then are going to start to produce certain cytokines and chemokines and, and toxic chemicals. And then if the stomach acid isn't right and they're not digesting proteins, well, they're going to get undigested protein in their colon. And there's a thousand different things that can go wrong with that. And so what you're getting at, Jeff, is something that I have felt. You answered this in the way that I expected was that it's not about oh well here's a uh, an autism probiotic or you know here here here's a probiotic for Alzheimer's it doesn't work that way we we're looking at function of the body balance of the body biochemically and you know so much of obviously our overall health is related to what's happening in our digestive system through what we digest absorb assimilate process eliminate and then, of course, you've got the immunological aspects of the microbiome. And, the, and then you mentioned the metabolites and the short-chain fatty acids and the influences that have. We could be here for hours talking about all of these relationships. And so this is the approach that I've always had. Again, it's not a, oh, here's a autism supplement, you know, or here's a supplement that's specific for diabetes it's understanding the function of the body and the interrelationship of the body. And then clearly, I think as time has gone on, is understanding more about 
wow, the microbiome has a huge impact on our overall health, you know, just from our mitochondria to our brain, to our immune system, et cetera. What do you feel nowadays is maybe the greatest or not the greatest, but a, a, a big compromising factor um, beyond farming and turning over the soil? Of course, we're losing minerals, but are there certain types of chemicals that are being used that are completely, you know, destroying the microbiome or what's happening with our soils are being sprayed? You mentioned DDT many years ago, but is there, a, you know, some things that, that you're concerned about? you know, when you're in an industry that you really feel are having a major negative impact? Mm -hmm. um, it, I, I put it under the heading of half-truths. Okay. All right. Um, the, the, you know, if you read the book, The Silent Spring, and you went back and reread it today and took the letters DDT out and you put in glyphosate, it's the exact same book. It hasn't changed. Right. A There's no different than that book. Right? And so the half-truth here is that Glyphosate affects the, I call it shikamati, other people call it shikamate pathway, right? Human beings don't have that pathway, so it can't affect a human being. Well, the six pounds of 100 trillion bacteria in your gut do, you know, so when you start affecting their existence and what they produce, now they're affecting the human being. So the half-truth is it, it doesn't affect the human but it affects everything that goes about us that's from, our, from the food that we digest and how we handle it in our gut. And remember, there's more, more signals from the gut to the brain than from the brain to the gut. And one of the things that I've seen with glyphosate, Jeff, is with many of the tests that I do and the population of patients I work with, uh, and there's some very compelling research out there to show how it actually has an antibiotic effect, not against the good, uh, not against the bad guys, but a lot of the good guys. And you get a, a, a tipping of the scale, so to speak, towards pathogenic bacteria. In fact, I use a research article uh, in some of my lectures where you're getting an overexpression of salmonella and clostridia and whatnot. And we see that on organic acid testing, for example. Many individuals who have recurrent problems of clostridia bacteria often tend to have high exposure or recurrent exposure to glyphosate. So it's so pervasive in our environment anymore. It's just difficult to get away from. Um, so I appreciate that. So, you know, we, we talked about fiber and I had a question for you and that is prebiotics, right? We, we talk about probiotics a lot, lactobacillus, bifidobacterium, soy-based organisms, but you know, give the audience what are people often ask me, well, what are prebiotics? And I have my sort of pat answer. I'm curious about what you describe, but you know, prebiotics in relationship to probiotics. Well, uh, you got to eat. What's breakfast to you, right? So, prebiotics are breakfast to the, the bacteria, right. it's really their food. I mean, we, we can't utilize pro, uh, fiber, they do, right? So, when you take a, a, a prebiotic, there are certain classifications, and to get really a little bit technical here, you've got some that are very low molecular weight, and molecular weight's in Dalton. So let's just take FOS, fructooligosaccharide. It's a very common prebiotic. It's cheap, and it can, goes into a lot of things. But it's, the molecular weight is so small that it'll feed just about anything. And I happen to be one of those people, just a small amount of isolated FOS, and so it'll feel like somebody put a basketball in me and blew it up until it exploded. I mean, it's, it's, it's painful from that. Um, but if you get FOS from an onion or a garlic or a tomato, 
I like to say there's unidentified nutrient factors that go with that that keep it from causing that problem. So that's in food. So you go from FOS at about 1,000 Daltons up to um, inulin. Uh, Jerusalem artichoke inulin is about 8,000 Daltons, but chicory is about 5,000 Daltons. So you got a big range of molecular weights. And the higher the molecular weight goes, the more specific the bacteria are they're going to be able to utilize so you get okay. to something like uh, partial hydrolyzed guar gum or guar fiber, and you're at about a 20,000 molecular weight, and only bacteria that produce an enzyme called inulinase can break it down. Well, that's going to be bifidobacteria. They're going to produce lactate. We're going to be converted to butate at the proper rate. So boom, you fed the right bacteria. They did the right thing. As long as you have the proper pH, everything will go on uh, as, as normal. So again, it's just whatever. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, fecal bacterium prosnitiae. You know, it's just a, a common thing in a genetic test. If you eat apple pectin, it goes up. If you eat orange pectin, it goes down. So what can you do? You know, I mean, so just that little simple change in the food you eat is going to change a very significant butyrate producer in the gut by what you eat. And then right. me with stool testing. There's a lot of bacteria that live in biofilms or are attached to the colonocytes. And without some sort of biofilm disruption, I like to say, it's kind of hard to see what they are. So if you were to do a test with and without, I think you would find remarkable differences because a test is a test. I love the tests. I think they give you a lot of direction, but they are an indication of what you ate two days ago. So, it, by the way, that on the biofilm note, uh, is there any substances in particular that that certain bacteria produce in the digestive tract that actually breaks down a biofilm? I know they live in the biofilm. No, no, because okay. um, biofilm is a term that came up. Oh, how long ago? Quite a ways ago. Dr. Chesterton was out in in, uh, in in Colorado trying to check the microbiology or the what bacteria in the mountain stream. Right? Couldn't find any. Where were they? They're on the rocks in a biofilm. Mm. That's, that's how they protect themselves. They build their homes. They protect themselves. Now, eventually, you get to a certain point where the, the, it's called quorum sensing, where there's so many bacteria in there, they decide, okay, half you guys got to go and have any room for anybody else. Out they go, and, and then they can, they can do their thing. But all bacteria live in biofilms. Right. So in what? your gut, you biofilms that have good guys and bad guys. It's what you feed them is which one dominates. If you look at... Two strains of acidophilus. One will inhibit E. coli. The other one it will inhibit salmonella. That's just in in one, two different strains of, of acidophilus. And so when you start looking at the hundreds of thousands of strains or 100 billion bacteria and all the thousands of different strains there are, they do a lot of different things. So and this conversation so really... Sorry, this conversation really reminds me of the fact of that principle of, you know, so much of what we all should be doing and all striving for is the, the quality of food and the diversity of food, you know, and many of plant-based foods is where, you know, I've done a lot of my, my research into the, into the nature that plant-based foods have. By the way, one of the ways that I describe prebiotics to patients is I call it fertilizer for the good bacteria. You know, so it it just helps to improve, or like you mentioned, it's it's the good bacteria food. You know, so just like we need to eat. Uh, so very very interesting. Um, 
you know, I'm I'm curious. You know, we we talk about, and I realize there's different uh, types of lactobacillus and bifidobacteria, and those are the kind of the main ones. I, I'm curious though, for and and even just as a as a doc, because you know we we talk, we prescribe probiotics, for example, but. Between those two groups, lactobacillus and bifidobacter, and, and from a general standpoint, are there certain things that they're doing specifically in our digestive tract or where they live preferentially to influence function? And, and what is that? Okay. Um, bifidobacteria are obligate anaerobes. They don't want oxygen. Lactobacillus are facultative. They can live with or without. So bifidobacteria are only going to reside in your colon. Lactobacillus are primarily going to be in your small intestine. Now, if you if you remember the, a picture of your 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 gut, if you will, the, the colon wraps around it, and all the inside is is you know that's a tennis court worth of surface area for bacteria uh, for lactobacillus. But ninety percent, seventy five percent of all the, the bacteria in your gut are within the, the last third of the small intestine, first third of the colon. You know, everything goes on there. And so the when you, your stomach acid's around one, five to three in that range, right? The pH generally starts to go up to get to the ileocecal valve. It's starting to get close to seven there, right? As soon as it crosses that valve, it drops down to about 5.2. You know, so it's a completely different environment in the colon than it is in the small intestine. As you come up the, the, uh, the ascending colon, you're still at a pretty low pH. Once you get into the transverse colon, again, you get some more bicarbonate put into the system, and now the pH goes up. And one of the things that's really interesting is when you increase your bifidobacteria, you're going to increase butyrate. But it only happens at a pH of about 6, 6.2. If it doesn't go up, the bifidobacteria make lactate. Lactate is converted to butyrate by Clostridia, Eubacteria, and others, but at the proper pH. If the pH isn't proper and there's no um, prebiotics there and not the right minerals, you're going to get more propionate. So it's, it's, it's an environment. It's like going into the Everglades and letting go of these pythons. You know, they're, they're taking over. They don't belong there, but they're taking over. So what's interesting is in the large intestine to get butyrate production, you need to be at a certain, a higher pH essentially. So, and, or you get uh, propionic acid produced. Mm -hmm. And that's very interesting because I know that propionic acid can have uh, some negative influence on mitochondrial function um, and that how it interacts and chemicals that it produces can actually uh, interfere pr primarily with the first half of the Krebs cycle. And this is something that has been researched quite a bit in autism, where many of these kids tend to have an overexpression of propionic acid. So what then is leading to the inability to raise pH in the large intestine? It's, it's got to be through food. It's maybe chemicals or increased transit time that's happening through the digestive tract. What, what, you know, what have you come across from a research standpoint that really shows what's maybe happening there? So there's a, a group called the Ulcer of Colitis Society, and they have a little chart that you put out. And it, and it, and it, and it lists foods by their pH contribution. What's the most alkaline food that's on that chart? Can you guess? A lemon. 
Yeah, that's right. Okay. I've, I've, yeah. All right. I've, and you yeah. go to the most acidic food you can eat. What is it? Soda. Right. So that's got a pH around two, um, the lemon around 10. So you also got cantaloupe and watermelon. Those are very alkaline foods. Meat and sugar are all acidic foods. Uh, and curiously, raw honey is um, alkaline, processed honey is acidic. Raw or, or natural um, uh, maple syrup is very close to alkaline, and the processed is very acidic. You know, so again, it's what food, even what form of food you're eating is going to have an impact on pH. And, and very few people understand how important pH is, is in, in the entire process of how everything works. That's a huge, that, I, I love that information. And I didn't know that actually about, I knew that, that butyric acid was produced by bifidobacter in the gut, but I, I didn't quite make the connection between the range of pH that actually happens, that has to, for that, for that to happen. I also didn't understand the propionic acid angle. So that is, that's, that's, that's hugely significant. Um, I think for, for doctors to understand, for people to understand it, and really helpful for, for me. I'm curious, uh, cow dairy, uh, does, where is that on the, the pH scale? Do you know as far as it, is it more acidic inducing, more alkaline inducing, or do you know? Uh, you know, it's probably, uh, I, I don't know right off the top of my head, um, but raw milk, you know, people have been for, for eons been drinking, you know, milk from animals that's not processed. All of a sudden, you start to pasteurize it. Now you've killed bacteria, you've killed enzymes, you've killed everything else. And now you've got that propensity for casein to be a, an issue. Or some people with lactose, you know, lactose right. is easy. That you can control pretty well with, a, you know, lactase, which is a, or get some lactose-free milk. Um, but, you know, just, just to, off to the side, when you talk about milk, how many people have switched away from milk to almond milk? Well, what's... Almond milk has a ton of oxalates in it, mm -hmm. you know. So you're just trading one, you know, one problem from another by, you know, going to all these processed foods. That's all you're doing. Real food from real animals, from real plants that are grown organically, you know, are I would say are pretty good for you. And conversely, the other things are pretty not good for you. And if you say organic food is too expensive, I hear that one more time. I'm going to say, what's the cost of medicine? <laughs> with garbage food versus spending a little bit more money on organic food and not having to spend so much on medicine. That is very true. Uh, very true. Hey, um, before we move on to enzymes, I want to ask you, you know, there's emerging information now, you know, with regards to what's happened with COVID. And uh, we, early on, we saw some information about changes happening in the microbiome. Um, and now with the spike protein and circulation, you know, through various concentrations, you know, either either taking out bifidobacteria, and there's been some research on that, or perhaps certain bacteria like E. coli may be acting as a factory, you know, for the spike protein. Um, is there uh, any thoughts you have on that? Uh, I'm sure you have many. Uh, or, you know, any things that maybe uh, moving forward, uh, I'm starting to think of myself just trying to get more towards a real food diet. But, uh, Certain types of bacteria that might help to offset that. Um, what, what's your what's your take on that? I would say probably not a lot there, um, other than to have a good healthy GI tract. When I first started reading about this in 
late 2019, early 2020, um, I was reading a lot about how bifidobacteria were a significant part of this, this whole, whole process. Um, and that in China, a lot of the research was going towards, you know, you, you ingest whether through your eyes, your ears, your nose, your mouth, whatever, it gets into your stomach, gets into your colon. And Chinese medicine then says the colon is attached to the lungs. So now it goes from the, from the colon to the lung if you, if you look at that you know, process. So you know, pardon me, I'll either put on my tinfoil hat and, and, or I'll put on my blinders. You know, take your pick. You wear whichever one you want to wear. Um, but, but a lot of research that's coming out of other places was talking about that. And they were saying, if you were going to do a PCR test, the best place to get it was from an anal swab and not from a nasal swab. Because we're, that's where the biggest part of the problem was in the colon. Now let's move for, uh, back one step to what's going on in the ground. There are bacteria called actinomycetes in the soil. Actinomycetes, there's one streptomyces, there's one streptomyces avermitis, which produces avermectins. And one of those avermectins is ivermectin. And ivermectin is consumed by bifidobacteria to help create certain enzymes and, and, and chemokines. They're going to help you with that. So if you look at the, the whole mother nature picture part of this, you know, these, 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 so many antibiotics are coming out of soil bacteria or actinomycetes. And, and they're now being just, just turned into something, you know, a little bit different. But all these things were there in the very beginning. Mother Nature provided, you know, ways to help cure us. The spike protein is very different. You know, that's going to take enzymes. It's so not going to take. Yeah, let's let's talk about let's talk about enzymes. So, I mean, I mean most people know about enzymes from uh, you know I take digestive enzymes, uh, and of course you know enzymes are throughout our body to help with different types of enzymatic reactions. Um, you know, thousands of them. So, first off, let's talk about enzymes for digestive function, and then we can shift you know to more systemic enzymes for other purposes. But I'm going to take you on a direct path from one to the other. Perfect. If I might, very Sounds quickly. good. I'm, go go, you go ahead. You, 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 you already you got said this part, right? It's not yep. what you eat, but it's right. what you digest. Right? So first thing you have to do is where does digestion begin? You smell food. Your body starts to respond. You start producing a lot more amylase to go into your saliva to break food down. And what do we do with food? We chew it. That's the one thing I think people don't do nearly enough of is chewing their food. Chomp, chomp, swallow, chomp, chomp, swallow, shovel it in as fast as you can, right? Then we go down we get into the stomach. Now you have to have a pH of somewhere between 1.5 and 3. If you don't have that pH, pepsin doesn't work. And without pepsin working, trypsin, chymotrypsin, et cetera, downstream won't work. Putrefactive anaerobic bacteria in the colon, and boom, you got all these toxins. Then, so you, you digest your food. You have to have that pH, and like I said before, then you, pancreatic juices come in, bile, and all that other stuff, and then uh, bicarbonate, and now other enzymes can start to work. And this is why we take a, a variety of digestive enzymes. So then you have to digest the food, but then you have to have manage the terrain, which is your small intestine, your colon, and you do that. With, you can do that with fiber and probiotics and a number of other phytochemicals, and like blue-green algae, whatever you want to, uh, to, to talk about. Then you have to be able to eliminate the waste that you had. So you have to assimilate and eliminate. But the one piece that I think everybody disregards, how many of your patients do you think have leaky gut? Oh, the vast majority do. 
So what do you do about that? Well, if you if every time you eat, you're putting under putting unwanted proteins into your bloodstream, you got to take systemic enzymes to break them down. And that will reduce inflammation. And what's inflammation the cause of? Almost all your disease. Yeah. So you're so, going from eating yeah. to taking care of your blood. With regards to what we talked about previously, bacteria, um, what is the relationship uh, that you know of between, we mentioned that lactobacillus, for example, lives primarily in the small intestine, but more toward the distal third, for example, right? Bifidobacter is more in the large bowel. Are there certain compounds that are being produced by the microbiome, i.e. the bacteria, that have a stimulatory effect on pancreatic output of enzymes? Or is that sure. primarily being controlled by just the movement of food, the sequencing events that's happening from the mouth through the stomach into the duodenum? Um, I'm just curious about that. It's, it, the system is interconnected. If I smashed your toe with a hammer, your eyes are going to water immediately. I mean, it's like what was told from here to there that. So I think our bodies are really marvelous marvelous machines you know when when your body says i need something boom it produces it and i think that gets to dr navio's thing all, all on the cell danger response how so much is going on at the cell danger level or the cellular level and and then immediately there's energy being transferred from this or this cell to that one to that one to that one it's, and, and all of a sudden it says you have to do this if there's just so much communication if you eat a lot of fatty foods your body's going to produce a lot more bile you know, if you eat more uh, meat, your your pancreas is going to produce more trypsin. It just knows to do that, mm -hmm. right? But as we age, we produce fewer enzymes, about 2 to 3% a year from about 23, 24 years old on. So by the time we get to where I am, there's not a whole lot left. So it really takes a lot more digestive enzymes to help you break down the food you eat. And if you do that, you're going to sleep better. If you sleep better, you'll heal better. So one of the things you mentioned about leaky gut, right? Because we know that leaky gut can obviously trigger many inflammatory reactions. You get the immune complex formations, leaky gut. I think some people sort of start to confuse the fact that you can also get damage along the lining of the digestive system and you start to express certain proteins that are part of the mucosal or our own intrinsic cells that can start to mix with you know food antigens and then that triggers a broader uh, type of autoimmune reaction. And then, of course, then, you know, that brings us to sort of the discussion of systemic enzymes. And so I'm curious, you know, there's a broad category here. And most people, when they think of enzymes, are, are not either thinking of systemic enzymes from a digestive standpoint. They might think of an enzyme being involved in a chemical reaction, like within the mitochondria, systemically. So what is this broader category of systemic enzymes that people are talking about? You know, natokinase, serapeptidase, these types of things. And how do they, or are they really any different than what's happening, you know, enzymes be, that are being produced by the pancreas? Um, perhaps it has to do with absorption or movement. What, what in, in your view, is sort of the main difference between the pancreatic enzymes or digestive enzymes, systemic enzymes, or maybe the the relate you know the the relationship between these? Well, uh, our body, you know, uh, let's just say you you get a a blood clot, 
right? Plasmin is going to break it down, right? And the body produces has many, many ways to make a blood clot, only one way to break it down. But you can take some systemic enzymes, serapeptidase, natokinase, lumbrokinase. You can take those away from food. They'll get into your bloodstream and they'll start to work on different processes around breaking down blood clots. Uh, lumbrokinase is a little bit more direct in how it approaches uh, you know, the, 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 the clot, the fibrin. Uh, natokinase has a, a few more ways of doing it. Um, serapeptidase is a very different way. So we'll just talk about where they come from. Serapeptidase comes from an enzyme produced by a silkworm to get out of its cocoon. Wow, right? Uh, earthworms, you know, are the ones that produce lumbrokinase. In fact, that's probably the only, only animal-based product that we have in all of our, our product line is from, from earthworms, right? And, and natokinase comes from Bacillus subtilis subspecies natto working with soy. The uh, Japanese have known this for a long time, and they've been really, really healthy. It's going back to, you know, the, 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 the whole concept that people were living 100 years, they found that they were eating yogurt. Uh, this, so many of these different things come from the way people ate foods. And now we've kind of looked at how does that work and where does it come from? Well, they've been doing it for a long time. But we just figured out why they were doing it. And we started looking at the the, the enzyme that caused that, we figured out how we could make that enzyme, then we could give it as a capsule. But a lot of it came from food, the way it was done the last 3,000 years or more uh, kind of a thing. Um, but systemic enzymes will get into your bloodstream, and again, they work on specific things, only at specific pHs. So let's so, talk about a few specific things. So serapeptidase, lumbarkinase, natokinase. I mean, uh, just, you know, just briefly certain targeted things that somebody would pick one over the other for, you know, for example? Yeah. I, I would say pretty much yes. Um, serapeptidase, uh, the one from the silkworm, seems to have this unique ability to tell dead tissue from live tissue. So it'll actually help break down scar tissue. And what, what they were using that for in typical Chinese medicine was opening up the pathways. You know, so, you know, for like when they were doing acupuncture, you need those meridians to be open and clear. If you put a cut in there, well, serapeptidase seems to have the ability to do that. It also helps keep um, the brush border cells clean. Um, and there's been a lot of research on how it may reduce the spike protein from adhering to cells. So that will do that. Natokinase, on the other hand, like Dr. Mc, um, McCall is talking about, natokinase, uh, bromelain and a few other enzymes have the ability to start to break down spike protein. In you just know, so general circulation or at the tissue level? Uh, and in general circulation okay. and probably at the tissue level, uh, I'm right. going to say, because these, these enzymes will get into your bloodstream and they'll travel and go anywhere that they need to be. And, and again, our bodies are amazing things. We have this one issue we think you want to take it for and we take it because it's supposed to do that. But it goes where it feels it's needed the most, and you don't even know it needed it there. And then it'll come back to the spot that you wanted to take care of it. So, you know, we have to give um, Mother Nature props for, for figuring things out like that that we don't always know ourselves. I like enzymes. I just say that they're the thing that are most important in your body we know the least about. <laughs> what about lumber kinase? Lumber kinase is, is uh, I think it's called a uh, promiscuous enzyme. It does okay. a lot of things. Primarily... Um, it's going to be going right after blood clots directly, but it has so many other things it does. It breaks down biofilms. It, it, it's just, 
it's just an amazing thing. But again, you got to take it away from food. So one of the things I think about is, one, the spike protein information is interesting. So serapeptidase, natokinase, probably lumbokinase could help as well. But um, with the clot formations, you know, the thrombus formations that people are having, uh, that makes you think of the lumbokinase maybe maybe more specific. Um, I don't know what kind of research exists. Maybe you don't know that how something like those might compare to uh, taking aspirin, for example, you know, to try to prevent against, you know, some type of uh, thrombus formation. Um, I don't know. I Maybe there's head-to-head studies that I'm not aware of, but I'm not sure if you're aware of that. But uh, I know that's well, a big issue. Well, I mean, they're saying take aspirin for a while for, you know, blood thinning, you know, and, and uh, the more you read, you find that, there are other side effects that you probably wouldn't want to have. Whereas enzymes, yeah. enzymes only do the job they're intended to do. You know, if they're supposed to break down this bond right here, that's all they can do. They can't do anything else. They have, they're very specific. So if you take too many, all you're doing is wasting money. So one of the things about absorption of these enzymes. So I don't know if there's chemistry literature that you're familiar of or other scientific literature to talk about how these things are absorbed. Um, you know, are they, you know, broken down. Of course, you have different transporting mechanisms that get across the epithelia, the lumen lining, and then the, you know, the other side. And then the big question is, is if something like serapeptidase or these other enzymes can circulate throughout the body, one of the areas that is most difficult sometimes to get compounds into is the brain. So can they pass through the blood-brain barrier adequately to have an effect within the central nervous system? So I'm, I'm, I'm curious if you come That's, across any information there. Yes, I, I have. And, and, and I don't know that it's a direct correlation, but if you have, um, you're, you're taking a good systemic enzyme, A, you're going to get improved circulation, which means you're going to get improved circulation in the brain as well. And what, what sometimes will happen on one side of the blood-brain barrier will affect the other side. So there's a, there could be some chemical processes, and I can show you a lot of different papers without getting into a lot of terminology, but it can impact a, a, a cytokine or a chemokine on this side, which will affect over here without crossing directly over. But there are a lot of studies, and these are all mouse studies, where they'll, they'll take natokinase and they'll see there's a direct relationship between amyloids, between how much uh, natokinase you take and what happens to amyloids. You know, so they're, they're, the, the effects can be profound. Is it a direct, I cross the blood-brain barrier and do the job, or do I cause something else to happen, which then responds over here? That one I can't answer. Right, but right. You cross the, the blood-brain barrier and the, 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 the lining of the small intestine are very similar in what gets through and what doesn't get through. Now, we have in, in the gut, you have pinocytosis. You have active transport or ways to move things out of the gut into the bloodstream. Um, and we've known about pineapple and papaya forever. You know, eating those foods, pineapple stems particularly, not the pineapple itself. But you, you bromelain and papain. You know, we've been they've been around a long, long time that people have known to use those for you know slow circulation issues. So, so you mentioned you mentioned up front that certain probiotics have an influence on certain types of cytokines. So interleukin ten or tumor necrosis factor. Um, and so, you know, you can think about, in some regards, in certain health conditions, whether it's, you know, rheumatoid arthritis versus something else, whatever, you know, and, and look for a product that 
has you know certain types of uh, factors like that. I know you have that information you know within your company. Are the are the enzymes themselves uh, are they triggering certain types of cytokine and chemokine reactions, or are they primarily breaking down these chemicals that have already been produced? You know, because these are proteins that get produced, and so. Are they just having a regulatory effect by breaking down something that's already been produced, or are they actually inducing production of something? Well, the enzymes work just in two ways. They break things down or they speed up reactions. Right? It's very simple. You know, I mean, uh, one example is um, one, there are two major antioxidant systems in the body, glutathione and superoxide dismutase. Right? Both of them produce hydrogen peroxide. There's got to be something there to break down hydrogen peroxide. It'll sit there forever unless you have catalase. Right. Catalase is an, an enzyme that's been in every living thing that's been on this earth that utilizes oxygen from the beginning. Right. Catalase will break down a million molecules of hydrogen peroxide in one second, one single unit. So it, all it's doing, is it, it's supposed to be there. You know, if you add it in, you'll, you'll break down a little bit more, but it speeds that reaction up. Significantly, I mean, but without catalase, it's not breaking down. Without you know catalase, it's not going to happen at a very rapid rate. So that's what they'll do when it comes to food. If you have two sugar molecules bound together like this, and you take the right enzyme like lactase, it'll break lactose apart. Boom! There you go. Now you have two different things. You know um, that that's all their job is to break things in half and speed up those reactions. Some reactions that if you just put that reaction out on a rock might take a million years to happen, but with an enzyme, it can happen in seconds. So really, you know, as we kind of come to the end here, I mean, all of this from the standpoint of, you know, it's, it's not just about, oh, take a probiotic. It's not just about take an enzyme. Of course, that's helpful, you know, but it's not the complete picture. It's the combination of all of these factors. And I think as, as time has gone on, right, with this, our, our food is toxic, our soil is depleted, our soil is toxic from chemicals. Our environment is toxic. And so in many regards, many people's bodies are toxic to some degree. And so we can see where just moving towards a real food diet is critically important, um, but also using certain types of, of targeted supplements to assist in the process is also very important. And to me, that would not only be just digestive enzymes, right? It's systemic enzymes. Because as you mentioned, uh, and what I've seen personally in my practice is the vast majority of people have some type of leaky gut. And people often ask me, do I have leaky gut? It's not just, you know, a thing. To me, it's actually, it's, actually a, it's a spectrum, right? It's, 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 it's not an all or none phenomena. And, then, and when you've got leaky gut, the longer you've had it, the greater chance you're going to have a leaky blood-brain barrier. Because if you look at the architecture of the tight junctions, the similar proteins, the similar architecture is there. And once you breach that blood-brain barrier, now you're activating microglia activation. Now you're triggering these immune reactions in the brain. And from a chronic standpoint, that can be quite problematic. And I think what's really helped, uh, helped me, Jeff, in that description of the enzymes is that the use of systemic enzymes, we can think of serapeptidase, lumbar kinase, natokinase, maybe having certain targeted things like Dr. McCullough is talking about natokinase with, I think it's uh, bromelain and quercetin is sort of the triple thing, you know, to maybe help prevent 
But the serapeptidase in the scar tissue, that's very interesting because there's been some conversations that have come up with people with uh, chronic neurological inflammation or seizure disorders, for example, where there may be some suspicion of scar formation wherever uh, in the brain or whatnot or in the central nervous system. And then, of course, we can think of just other areas where there's chronic inflammation that's been set up. So that's, that's fantastic. Fantastic information. As we kind of come to the end, I want to show your website too, but any final thoughts on this discussion that that you want to kind of get out to doctors that are out there listening or the general public of maybe some, you know, misconceptions on probiotics and enzymes or uh, maybe kind of, you know, summarize this. Where do you want me to start? <laughs> I mean, there's so many misconception is crazy, you know, but look, if, if, we do a lot with with healthcare providers, and they they know their patient. I don't know them. I can't possibly know every patient there is in this country. You know, so what I can do is I can say, here's the bacteria that we use, and these are the the the, the structure function of those bacteria. Do they produce denegative lactic acid or L positive? Do they break down oxalates? Do they not? Do they increase histamines? Do they not? Structure function. You know, if you know you have a patient that has you know, elevated histamines and too many oxalates and is per, and they can't handle D-negative lactic acid. I'll tell you which bag. I'll, I'll give you my chart and you can look on the chart and see which one that you should be taking of the of the ones that we have, right? But that's your call. It's not mine because I can't know that much. But I do know the bacteria and what they do. I'm constantly researching what they can do. And we start, this is like a living document that we produce. That we put the information out there and we let, we try to see healthcare providers say, Ah, you know, if I can do one thing to help one patient, that's all I care about. Right. You know? um, and information me, is the tool. That's right. Well, let me show your website here. Okay. So, so I, I believe this is your homepage. So for people who are interested. Okay. So you've got a list of products here. So there's a, a lot of information. Uh, I like the fact that you've got these bundle uh, aspects for, you know, transport, colon cleanse, et cetera, uh, and then various programs. And then you also, I, I believe on your site, you had, yeah, so you actually had white papers and research, which I think is very important for healthcare practitioners to, to understand, be able to get, get more information. Uh, where can people... Uh, reach out directly. Uh, you actually you should have a, a contact us, I'm, I'm assuming, on this particular. Yeah, if you go to the very bottom, you scroll down, there's an 800 number you can call, you can email us, you can do a lot of different things. You know, uh, is there a contact us? Yeah, under support, contact right. us. Got it. Okay. Um, okay. You know, um, and, you know, there's a lot of companies, you know, we this is the line that we'll put into health food stores or we'll sell on our website, et cetera. If you go to usenzymes.com, that's just for healthcare providers. Okay. You know, there are some out there that say it's like playing whack-a-mole, whether they show up on Amazon or not. We try to keep shutting it down because if if it's if it's sold on Amazon, I have no idea if they've stored it well, if it's expired or anything about it. Right. You know, I, I can't know it. And real quickly, before we end, I wanted to to show it was it's Theralac. I think that was the is that the flagship probiotic? That yep, that's been around since day one, and I will tell okay. you this: we've been dealing with Lyme disease and autism since about 2003. I went to the first Dan conferences. I've been going to ILADS conferences since then. 
And those that probiotic right there has been around a very long time. And if you ask our Lyme docs, they don't get C. diff in their patients when they take antibiotics and they give antibiotic cocktails. You know? So you you had mentioned up front, that's that's and I, I know this probiotic's been around a long time. I've used it. So the 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 supplement label, real quickly, so people get a visual of this. And as you mentioned, like looking for probiotics, you know, what what to look out for, for example. So they're they're obviously listing, you're listing the lactobacillus acidophilus type of strain. And then we've got um, the CFU count, for example. So, you know, how does this differ for, for example, let's say, I don't know, you go to a box store and just pull out the regular probiotic that's in a plastic bottle. Um, are they typically not listing the strains? Or they just typically, sort of- they're not listing the strains. Typically, okay. they're not telling you how many of each strain there is. So what we did what, when we first created this product in 2001 or so, we went and looked at the literature and we found this organism at this count in this number period of time would give you X, Y, Z result. So we made sure that we gave enough bacteria in, in a capsule to meet the results of that study so that we could say to a, to a doctor, look, you know, here's the thing. And it said you need 10 billion CFU in a week. Well, we made sure in two capsules you, you, or, you know, maybe it was said two billion. And in two capsules, we made sure that you had enough in a week. You know, so we, we over, over formulated. And then we're guaranteeing on this one, we're guaranteeing those 30 billion CFU at expiration, mm. not the day okay. we made it. Right. So that you can know that if, you know, if, if, it, if you get it from us and it has an expiration date of, of October of 2023, it's still good. Now, next month is going to be beyond. You know, um, and so it's a different thing. Um, but we store it at minus 10 because we know that they need to be dry. So it's drier in our bottle than the Sahara Desert's ever been. So we don't get ice crystals inside the bottle. If you look at down at the bottom, you see the, um, the cellulose is just a carrier to keep it dry. Sodium alginate is to get it through the stomach. The, uh, the hydroxymethylpropyl cellulose is just a capsule. The TSP is just for buffering. Um, and if you look at the bottom, there's lactostim, sunflower, lecithin, and oleic acid. That wakes the bacteria up. They've been okay. freeze-dried. You know, it, it reconstitutes the cell membrane so they can intake nutrient. Now, I can add it to any probiotic in the world, and it'll produce more lactic acid in 12 hours than it does now. But again, this goes back to uh, uh, an error that we found back in the 70s of what happened when we were growing bacteria, and there was no mag stearate in there. Or, um, um, uh, Polysorbate 80, sorry. No polysorbate 80. Right? Well, nobody wants polysorbate 80. So we went into our lab and we started work. We found that those two things work so much better. And we use sunflower lecithin instead of soy. Right? But so the, getting it through the stomach and waking them up, A, we get deep delivery, but now we also have to be careful about compatible organisms. You know, lactobac- or the lactobacillus plantarum inhibits the growth of bifidobacteria. They just don't get along. So I put two kids in the sandbox that don't get along. You know, they're going to be throwing sand. They're going to, they're not going to kill each other, but it's not going to be a, a great time or the energy's bad. So we look at all those different things, but that's how we do it. Right. 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 It's right. the only way or the best way is how it's just how we do it. So everything we do is, is, is and then there's no allergens in there. In fact, our, our, um, our natokinase, even though it's grown in soy, is soy free. And there aren't very many companies that make soy free natokinase. There's some soy in there. People with soy issues, not such a good thing, you know? 
Well, Jeff, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate your expertise. Uh, your, your, your pearls. Uh, I've definitely learned some things myself, you know, um, again, the, the, the butyrate propionic acid angle in the large intestine. That's, that's like, as I mentioned, that's so significant. So huge. I've been researching a lot, you know, about mitochondrial function and, uh, and looking back at even past research on, on these factors, the butyrate, proponic acid, other fatty acid metabolites, it's a, it's a big deal. So, so much, so much information, so much, uh, great wisdom. I appreciate it. And, um, so yeah, I'll, we'll definitely, uh, encourage people to check out your website, reach out to you with questions. And, um, I, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Uh, you know, I, if I can share what I know, that's good. I don't know a lot, but I know a lot about a little thing. <laughs> All right. All right. Thanks so much. Take care. All right. Thanks. You've been listening to the Functional Medicine Doc Talk podcast with Dr. Kurt Wohler. For more information about this podcast, go to functionalmedicinedoctalk.com.